Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll return to 1 Peter after a few weeks of looking at some other things. We had a baptism sermon, or two baptism sermons, then we had a sermon uh, from 1 John, Um, and so now we are returning to 1 Peter chapter 1 and our discussion of saving faith. We'll begin our reading in verse 17. Here now, the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. 1 Peter 1.17 And if ye call on the Father without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. And may God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Stephen Charnock gives us some assistance this morning as we begin. And indeed that grace which he gives is eternal life, for so he calls it in John 17, 2 and 3. What he calls eternal life, which he had power to give, he calls in verse 3, the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, whom God hath sent. The knowledge of God in Christ, a gracious, affectionate knowledge of faith. Spiritually, to know him as sent by God for such great ends is faith and eternal life. Though it be but a bud in this world, subject to storms and winds, mixed with much ignorance and doubts, yet it is life and eternal too. For there is no essential difference between grace and glory, but only in degree. Therefore, Christ saith so frequently in John, I give unto them eternal life. Not I will give, but I give at present. And he that believes hath eternal life, not shall have. For grace is a persevering principle, which shall overpower the corruptive principle of sin. If this knowledge of God in Christ implanted in the soul should perish, It cannot then deserve the title Christ gives it. And indeed, it is not agreeable to the wisdom of God and the honor of the Son to cast about so much and contrive the sending of Christ to bestow only a perishing gift and to let the honor and fruit of His Son's death, His gift of grace, depend upon the mutable will of man. Well said. We begin with a bit of review You'll remember that we are studying uh, saving faith and we're doing so by using the larger catechism as our outline. Right? What is justifying faith? It's a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery and the, and the inability of himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition. Nope, I'm sorry, I conflated that with repentance unto life. Please forgive me. Uh, It speaks of saving faith as not only assenting to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Speaks of a sinner, right? 
um, going out of himself to Christ. So last time, we're building those positive things up. And the first building block we said was knowledge. The first building block of saving faith is knowledge. There must be certain things that we know. Uh, We heard that in the reading earlier today out of Exodus chapter 5. What did Pharaoh say? I know not Jehovah. Who is Jehovah? I don't know him. If you don't know him, you can't believe in him. You can't rest upon him. There must be some understanding there. Stephen Charnock references John 17, 2 and 3. And this is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And so last time we were together on this passage and on this topic, we used two particular passages of Scripture, right? Well, three. We said uh, in, from Romans ten seventeen, we said faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is something that is imparted through hearing and that by preaching according to 14 through 16 of Romans 10. Then we looked at John chapter 8. And Jesus there speaking to the Pharisees who were steeped, weren't they? Steeped in the word of God of that day. And yet they were steeped in other things too that eclipsed the word of God in their thoughts. And so Jesus will say to them, unless ye believe that I am, ye shall die in your sins. I like, uh, I have an appreciation for uh, some of the things that Dr. Walter Martin uh, taught when he was alive. One of the things that I learned from him was that Jesus, it was there speaking about his, his Godhead. And the way Dr. Martin put it was, unless you believe that I am the eternal God, you will die in your sins. Which is exactly what Jesus was saying there. And we looked at that. And then we looked at one more. uh, And that was in John chapter 11. Where Jesus speaking to Martha says, Your brother shall rise again. And she says, I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus will say to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou that or this. And she will say, Yes, Lord, I have believed that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, who should come into the world. Okay, so what do we have there? We have what we have styled as believed that, or believe that. That there are true scripture statements that must be believed in order to saving faith. We We contrasted, didn't we? Maybe I'll remind you of this as well. We contrasted the the definition of faith as as held by the the Dutch philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who said that faith is really more of a feeling than it is doctrinal or truth content. And uh, he's the one that, that Dane, who said, you know, there's a Lutheran on one side of town, and he's praying to... God in a in a rote way without his heart being in it and there's another guy over here on the other side of town and he's a what they called in those days a Muslim a Muslim and he's praying 
to his God, but he's praying with sincerity, with, 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 um, with great affection. And so he's really praying, and the Lutheran is not. Right? Removing all rational content out of faith, all knowledge content, and making it completely about the feelings. Beloved, that is not unheard of today. And we said then, and we say again, we believe that Dr. Greg Bonson was correct when he said that it would be impossible to overestimate the damage that Kierkegaard has done to the modern church. This is true. We hear things like, don't, don't tell me about doctrine. That's what divides us. It's not really doctrine that divides us. It's false doctrine that divides us. It's the truth that unites us. And by truth, we mean the, the propositional statements of Scripture. Things that are set forth in Scripture, and then we will be asked, do you believe that? So, knowledge is the first movement in faith. We spoke of those three Latin terms, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. And we're going to continue to use that outline. We're just in the first section of it. So, we, we presented the positive side the last time we were together in those statements from Romans 10, John 8, and John 11. Now, here we go. We're going to continue down the road, and we're going to... We're going to talk this morning, Lord willing, on uh, why these things are necessary. Why are they presented to us like this? Why is believe that a thing in Scripture? Why is it? Well, in our day, there are many species of this era. There, uh, of this era, there is a general apathy concerning the knowledge of God in our day. Even in some cases, it is beyond apathy. In the Reformed churches now, many errors are being tolerated with regard to the knowledge of God. For instance, what we have understood historically as the impassibility of God. Uh, That is being pushed aside for a God that feels and changes and grows with his creation. We used to have a name for that. We called it panentheism. Now, some places call it orthodoxy. Beloved, this is a foul error. It's a foul error. There are other uh, kinds of errors. Uh, One of them is called Molinism. It was held by a man such as Clark Pinnock in the modern era, which said God doesn't really know everything. He plans on certain things, knowing how things work together, but he hasn't determined the end. He's left that up to the working of things instead. Beloved, we don't believe that. In fact, we believe that folks who believe in that God believe in a God that is different from the God of Scripture. Notice how Jesus um, uh, describes saving faith in John 17, 2 and 3 that we've already said. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You cannot have eternal life, beloved. Believing in a false God. The God of the Molinists is not God. The God of Clark Pinnock was not God. He has since passed to his eternal reward. Mr. Pinnock. The God that is. um, 
somehow passable, changeable, or mutable is not the true God. We don't want to believe in that God. What good would it do to rest upon a God that is mutable, changeable? How can we hope on such a God as that? No, instead, we must believe what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. Listen to Calvin here. Is this what believing means? To understand nothing provided only that you submit your feeling obediently? Now Calvin there will be speaking on implicit faith. We have an old enemy in the church. It's called implicit faith. And what is implicit faith? Well that was brought to seed in the Roman Catholic Church. Dogmatized there. As you know the faithful. They don't really need to believe anything except in the church. They replace faith in Christ. Faith in God. With faith in the church. And so a faithful Roman Catholic will confess, I believe whatever the church teaches me. That's what faith is described as in Scripture. And of course in our confession we say that that is destructive of true faith and destructive of, quote, liberty of conscience. It cannot be held. No, we want to believe in the Lord We want to believe in him, in the true God. We don't want to replace faith in God and faith in Christ with faith in the church. Or faith in the papacy. Certainly that is becoming less and less popular today. We like that. Because the papacy, in many ways, the veil is being pulled back and we're seeing it for what it is. And yet there are many that would still cry up this doctrine of implicit faith. But may I say it this way, beloved, implicit faith is not only an, an error that exists in the Roman Catholic Church that has been dogmatized there, it has been unofficially dogmatized in many Protestant churches, as well as the people of God through their own sloth or inattention or lack of care, simply leave it up to their church to decide for them what they believe. Have you ever been in a discussion And someone will ask, well, what do we believe on that? I always like to answer that question with, well, I don't know what we believe. I can only tell you what I believe. And hopefully what I believe and what you believe is somehow defensible from Scripture as we teach who the only true God is and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent. Listen to the fullness of this quotation from Calvin. Faith rests not on ignorance, but on knowledge. And this is indeed prepared, uh, I'm sorry, and this is indeed knowledge not only of God, but of the divine will. We do not obtain salvation either because we are prepared to embrace as true whatever the church has prescribed, or because we turn over to it the task of inquiring and knowing. But we do so when we know that God is our merciful Father, because of reconciliation affected through Christ, and that Christ has been given to us as righteousness, sanctification, and life. We must know these things ourselves, beloved. Children, you have heard me say over and again to you from this very pulpit that there's no such thing as, quote, Christian grandchildren. And you know what I mean by that. There are grandchildren that are Christians. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, you don't get to be Christian because your parents believe. You yourselves must believe in Jesus Christ. 
And in order to believe in Jesus Christ, you must believe in him. You must understand him. You must know who he is. The angels that stood with the apostles when Jesus Christ ascended in Acts chapter 1. They didn't say Jesus will come again. They said, Hutas Hayehu, Hayesus. This very Jesus will come again. Not the Jesus down the street. Right? There's all kinds of folks claiming saviorhood. There are many that would fain to stand in that gap for you. The state wants to do it today. They want to become your supplier, your be-all and end-all. All you have to do is give them your loyalty. This, is, this was Pharaoh of old. Give me your loyalty. Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. This is the Caesars over again. They will say what? Just burn a little incense. And you can be delivered from the lions. And what did our forefathers in the faith do? Well, they refused. They refused those substandard propositions of the knowledge of God. And instead... They stood firm on what the scriptures declared about God. They did not put the church in place of God himself. And they, like Calvin says, they did not give up for themselves the task of inquiring and knowing themselves. Each of us, in order to believe in Jesus Christ, are required to know him. To know who he is. One of the places you might want to start, a very interesting little poster that we have on the wall back there that has a listing of the names of Jesus as they have been revealed to us in Scripture. How does Christ reveal himself? You'll want to know who Jesus Christ is. Read those 40 or 50 some names by which Jesus makes himself known. Learn to understand who he is and May the Lord bless your study and reveal himself to you in that. Apart from knowledge, beloved, we cannot believe in Jesus Christ. So this doctrine of implicit faith then replaces the Lord himself with the church. I believe the church is the outcome of this system. Placing other lords over your faith. Instead of Christ himself. This is destructive of true Christian faith and liberty of conscience. In the exercise of private judgment. Remember that the church, beloved, will not be standing by you on judgment day. When you make your confession before that great white throne and him who sits upon it. Every one of you will give account to God. And that accounting must be some knowledge. I'd like to address... The uh, statement also, uh, well, how much knowledge is enough? This is a really good question, and yet it is not particularly precise in its answer, is it? Because that knowledge will be uh, geared, it will be adapted to, for instance, uh, the history of, of when people lived. It will be adapted to the opportunities that people had of learning Jesus will say, to whom much is given, much is required. 
We might also say that the converse of that will be true. To whom little is given, little is required. There are men that lived centuries, millennia ago. Men like Jethro. Men like Shua. You know why I mention Shua? Or, sorry, Bildad, the Shuhite. You know why I mention him? He's mentioned in Job. Right? And who is he? Who is a Shuhite? Remember that Shua was a descendant of Abraham. And so Bildad, the Shuhite, will, through his association to the offspring of Abraham, he will have had some exposure to special revelation through that family. And so Bildad the Shuhite will be judged as he is, isn't he, at the end of that book of Job for the knowledge that he failed to have, that he ought to have had. How much then? Well, let me, instead of asking that question, because aren't we, in a sense, these um, techie uh, minimalists? What's enough? Just tell me what I need to know, Pastor. Bring me over that line of what I have to know. Well, if I erase that line, will that be disconcerting to you? Because what I believe the scripture teaches is that in every age, the people of God strive to know everything they can in every age. This is the example of the godly, is it not? Isn't this the example? When we talk about implicit faith, what have we done? We've given up the task of investigation to someone else. We have said, it's enough that I have a teacher. And so whatever he says, without judgment, without comment, without contradiction, without questioning, I will receive it. Beloved, I don't want you to do that, not for me and not for anyone else. Number one, that's not good for me. It's not good for a minister that is, who is never challenged by his people. That there's never any question that comes up. What will that do for him? That will make him slothful and lazy. He'll stop doing the work. He'll stop backing it up. He'll stop taking out that legal pad and writing down three pages of objections to the doctrine that he's about to teach and answering all of those objections before he teaches it. Right? If the Lord, and he does this, will condescend in the book of Micah and will say to his people, O my people, what have I done unto thee? Testify against me. If the Lord will condescend in such a way, certainly all of our teachers should be ready to do the same. We must not give up the rights of private judgment because truly beloved, it is not possible for us to do that. We will be drawn into account according to those rights of private judgment and how we have informed our own understanding through scripture, making use of our teachers, making use of those godly books that we have read, making use of the scriptures, making use of, of the preaching of the gospel, which God has designed to be the power of of God unto salvation. So we make use of all those things. And the Lord give the increase. And the Lord will draw us into 
judgment. So we, so we must not give up that task, number one, as Calvin has taught us. It is also, is it not a handmaid to tyranny that the leadership of any church would require implicit faith, having nothing to prove and everything to assert? Some, under species of this error, have demanded of the people that they move across the country, give up their temporal goods. They have a, quote, word from the Lord. And having that word, they would indeed make merchandise of the people of God. In the book of Jeremiah, the Lord will say to Jeremiah and to the rest of the people, prophets prophesy for hire, and my people love to have it so. This is condemned in Scripture. It is never cried up in Scripture as good, humble obedience. Good, humble obedience is always rendered unto the Lord. So justifying faith is not so then. It is filled with biblical knowledge. It searches the scriptures to see if those things that are spoken are true, like the Bereans of old. Making men the lords of our faith and conscience, according to larger catechism 105, is a sin. We are to follow Christ and his voice. He is our shepherd's. Our shepherd, and we cannot make men the lords of our faith and conscience. But beloved, this also means we cannot make ourselves the lords of our conscience. And this is the other shoe that we must drop. Rather than giving up implicit faith to someone else, sometimes we, sometimes we give up implicit faith to our own desires. And this is the kind of thing that happens, I think, more often than we are liable to admit. I've had countless conversations with people on many topics. Let's say one of them would be the Sabbath. So you're talking with someone about your, your understanding of the Bible's teaching of Sabbath keeping. And they will say something like this. Oh, well, I don't believe that. Okay. Um, is there a reason you don't believe that? Or... Is that in keeping with what you want it, what you want to be true? Well, I don't think the Bible requires it. Okay. Uh, so, what verses would you would you um, would you put? Well, well, you see, it can't be done because what you're trying to do, Pastor, is you're trying to prove something that the Bible doesn't prove. I see. Well, how many commandments do you have, brother? Ten. No, I'm sorry, sir, you don't. You have nine, don't you? Truly. And the conversation goes down that road a while, and biblical evidences are brought out, and then finally the end of the discussion is, well, I just don't believe that. What is that? It's making our own self. Remember, when our, when our, when our catechism teaches us making men the lords of our faith and conscience, calling that a sin, that includes ourselves. Making ourselves the Lord of our conscience. Because God alone is Lord of the conscience. And so, in our conversations then, when we talk about any particular practice or belief that we have, it must never run back to, I just don't, or I just do believe. It must always have some scripture behind it to direct us to fill up our knowledge. No, beloved, implicit faith is a, 
is a terrible error, whether it's implicit faith in our own wills, in our own desires, in our own conscience, or whether it's implicit faith given to someone else. This is not saving faith. It is not Bible knowledge faith. Our confession, as we heard last week from 14.2, is, I think, well, I just believe that it is one of the, one of the most wonderful statements of saving faith ever when it says, By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein. You see, there is such a thing as implicit faith, but it is implicitly given to God alone. And it is understanding what he has said. We don't question him. He is the Lord of our faith and conscience. Now, now note, and, and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. May I say that I think many Westminster confessors mistake when they come to 14.2. Because what they really understand 14.2 to say is the, the only acts required of saving faith are receiving, resting, and trusting in Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. When our confession says those are the principal acts of saving faith, and we don't leave out the rest. True marks of saving faith are indeed that we tremble at the threatening, that we embrace the promises, that we yield obedience to the commands. That is also a part of saving faith. It may not be the principal act of saving faith, but it is certainly a part of saving faith. So implicit faith then must indeed uh, be turned away from. There is a requirement for every Christian then to be convinced in his own mind, but not contrary to scripture. Turn with me to Romans 15 for a moment. Verse 1, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell upon me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Let's go ahead and... Um, and let's see. Now the God of, pay, of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then... Um, in this passage, in chapters 14 and 15, especially over here in 14, verse 4, 
Who art thou that judgest another man's servant to his own master? He standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind is the command that the apostle gives there. But this must be according to the analogy of scripture. And so while some who are not Sabbath keepers would turn to this passage and again to the passage in Colossians chapter 2 and they would say, well, you see, the Sabbath isn't required in the New Testament. First of all, let's note this, that the apostle says that we must have good scripture reason for doing so. We are commanded here to be convinced. That we are convinced according to scripture and we are convinced in our own mind. And so how can one day... How can, with regard to an indifferent thing here, uh, or may I say it this way, how can we um, have something that is so very indifferent here, and yet we are still commanded to be absolutely convinced in our own mind? You see, even in indifferent things, and I'll tell you what the indifferent thing is in a moment, but even in indifferent things, if we are in them serving the Lord, we must be completely convinced of doing so. Whether we observe the day or not, according to Romans 14, verse 5, we are commanded to be convinced in doing so. You see how inimical this is to implicit faith. So, what is being said here? Well, Paul is obviously addressing, as all good and sound Reformed commentators will teach, Paul is addressing a mixed church, some of whom are desiring still, while the temple stood, to observe Jewish holy days. And then there are Gentiles that were not required to do so. And we read that, don't we, from Acts chapter 15. The Gentiles were not uh, required to observe those extra holy days, maybe even the Saturday Sabbath, especially when they had a Christian church in their midst, that met on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. There were some Jews, however, that had been raised and just could not see themselves being anywhere but the synagogue on the Sabbath day. But they were not able, were they, to press that commandment to the Gentiles. This was an indifferent matter. And yet, notice, in that indifferent matter, they were required to be convinced in their own mind. In fact, Paul will say, fully convinced in their own mind. It's a, it's a compound Greek word. And it's very, very emphatic. And so, beloved, even in that indifferent thing, because they called it service to God, right, worshiping Him on the Saturday Sabbath before the fall of the temple, they were, they were commanded to be convinced of that in their own mind. It was not an indifferent thing. And so this is so far then from any kind of implicit faith. Faith must be based on knowledge. That's number one. Number two, secondly, um, what we end up doing in this, and this is what we talked about for a moment or two before, is we end up dividing things into things necessary to be known and things not necessary to be known. There are, quote, essential truths, and then non-essential truths. Well, may I ask this, first of all, has God divided up his scripture into essential and non-essential parts? 
No, he is not. In other words, the, the, the statement, these things are necessary and these things are not necessary, that's a human construct that's been placed on the Bible. And then the second thing that we must ask ourselves is, necessary for what? It's like Thomas Witherow says in his book, The Apostolic Church, Which Is It? I didn't bring the quotation with me, but I think I can do enough of it from memory. Um, he's talking about church government. What, church, what ought church government to look like? He says, he says, well, there are many that would say church government is an indifferent matter. It's really not necessary. And then he will give two responses to that. He will say necessary for what? While it may not be necessary for salvation, we all have people that we believe can be uh, regenerated people that are in independent churches, say, or in, a, or in uh, Episcopalian churches. It's not an essential salvation truth. Church government is not. So let's ask necessary for what then? It is necessary for some important thing or God would not have put it in scripture. And then he will go on to say this about the Bible. This is what the Bible says about itself. The law of the Lord is perfect. Take out a necessary thing and guess what? It's not perfect anymore. Or take out what you call an unnecessary thing. And guess what? It's not perfect anymore. Right? So let's be careful about dividing up the scriptures into necessary truths and unnecessary truths. We sometimes do that even in our confession. Uh, We do want to speak about although it is not the necessary, unnecessary distinction, we do put the, the end of it, and that's the important thing, to think about the end of these particular truths. Right? And so our confession will say that the doctrine of salvation in Scripture, although all things are not alike plain in Scripture, that the doctrine of salvation is so clearly set forth throughout the Scripture that anyone, through the use of ordinary means, may come to a saving understanding of Christ. So notice what we've said there. That with regard to the doctrine of salvation, we haven't distinguished it as necessary and everything else unnecessary, but we have said that with regard to that particular doctrine, the scriptures are perspicuous, while it may be that in other doctrines, say eschatology, the scriptures are not so perspicuous, not so open and clear. And so with regard to those things that are not so very open and clear, what have we done? We have allowed some charity in that. But it doesn't mean that your belief in eschatology doesn't matter. I think it can be shown and has been shown by many exegetes that are alive today and have been alive in times past that one's eschatology has great practical implications on how they live. Certainly we have seen the fruits of a perverse eschatology in our day when we, have, when we had heard for almost a generation that you don't polish the brass on a sinking ship. Beloved, I'm here to tell you, the ship is sinking. And quite possibly because of the removal of the church out of the world because she believed that the world was about to end. There are indeed implications. And... Once we begin to see those implications, we will begin to understand their necessities, won't we? 
So every truth in Scripture has some necessary end. Those necessary ends may not all be saving ends. But beloved, the the godly attitude in Scripture is, I don't want to know about God only what is necessary to be saved and then leave me to myself. We have example after example in Scripture of those godly saints who wanted everything that they could learn about God. They wanted everything they could know about God. They wanted it all. And this ought to be the attitude of the Christian. This is, in fact, the attitude of true saving faith. The lament of saving faith is not that there is too much to know. The lament of saving faith is is that I don't know what I ought to know. We'll remember, won't we, in the book of Exodus, as we come up on that reading now from Scripture. Um, here we are in uh, chapter 15, we'll ha- or 14, we'll have the Exodus. 15, we'll have the triumph. 15 through 19 is the preparation for the giving of the law, right? And then in 20, we have the giving of the law. And then in 21 through 23, we have Moses up on Mount Sinai and coming back down in 24. And the people of God then doing what? Making covenant with God. Moses going back up to Mount Sinai for 40 days. And then what happens in chapter 32? We have the sin of the golden calf. What has Moses been doing for 40 days? He's been looking at God face to face on Mount Sinai. And so after the scenario of the golden calf where Moses intercedes for the people of God in chapter 32 and 3, what happens? Moses asks this question of God. Show me, I pray thee, thy glory. Moses has been 40 days with God apart from everybody else, staring him face to face. Moses even said, I exceedingly fear and quake, we find out in Hebrews chapter 12. And yet, Moses desires more. Moses knew more than many of his day, more than any of his day, more than many of ours, yet it was not enough for him. Why? Because Moses was possessed of that faith that we call saving faith. But it's not just Moses. It's the same attitude displayed by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3, we note that Paul says, you know, there was a day that I was a pretty good Pharisee. And if you want me to tell you about that, I could. Circumcised the eighth day, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, and so on. Then notice, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Verse 8, yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain 
unto the resurrection of the dead. Verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. The Apostle Paul, we believe, it's hard to know exactly, but certainly he spent three years learning at the feet of Christ. Certainly he did that. We remember that the, that the apostles had a three-year ministry with Christ. Paul also had a three-year ministry with Christ, uh, perhaps on the backside of Arabia. It's hard to know, right? We're conjecturing a little bit there. But Paul does say for the space of three years. And then, he's, and then he does speak also of what? Well, he speaks of those visions and revelations of God where he heard things that it is not lawful for him to repeat. Well, in the attitude of many in the Christian church today, that'd be enough. Wasn't enough for Paul. What did he say? I want to know Christ from the top to the bottom. From the, uh, I, I want to be engaged with Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. Right? And in the glory of his resurrection. I want to be engaged in both of those. I want to know from the bottom to the top. The power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings. Being made conformable to his death. That I might by any means attain to the resurrection of the dead. This same apostle says this. That we in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That we... Gazing upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ are being transformed from glory to glory, even as by the Lord, the Spirit. Let me tell you what Paul doesn't mean there. He doesn't mean we're looking upon the face of Jesus Christ and that gloriousness today, and one day we will be transformed into that glory. That's not what he means. He means that today, we are being transformed into that glory. It is, we are being transformed from glory to glory. And that process of gradual glorifying will be finalized in glory. Think of the advancement of knowledge that you will enjoy in glory, beloved. And then remember that that has already begun. Saving faith doesn't put limits on what you have to know. It's a get to know and I want it all. That's the attitude of Moses and that's the attitude of Paul. Now we know that these things are according to God's self-revelation and the illumination of his spirit. Paul will even say we are being transformed by the Lord the spirit. We understand that. These are according to his workings in us. We're not responsible for how much we learn in that sense. However, we are responsible for how much we expose ourselves to that means of learning. How much we expose ourselves to that means of understanding. How much desire we have to grow and to be conformed to the image of Christ. From the fellowship of his sufferings to the glory of his resurrection. 
There's no bar on that knowledge. There is a necessary knowledge, but God has not revealed that necessary knowledge in Scripture as it moves and changes throughout the history of redemption. And he's, just like he's not revealed the day of your death or the day of your redemption, he does so to prevent presumption. Because he knows our frame, that we are but dust. And he is a kind father. And so he tells us, keep after it. You're being transformed from glory to glory. Keep after that and keep in the way of that increase of knowledge. Learn all you can about the Lord. And bewail not that there's so much to learn. But bewail the little progress that we make in this life because of indwelling sin, distraction, weakness, and just plain human difficulty. It is indeed passing strange, isn't it? That being fraught with weakness and human difficulty, that there are those who would complain about there's too much to know. No, beloved, turn that frown upside down right turn it over on its head and say oh that there would be from God an illumination of my own mind that I might learn more and more about him and the more that we learn the more blessed we will be the apostle John will say it this way in 1st John chapter 3 Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now this next, these next two words are very important. Make sure you hear them. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. We're the sons of God now, beloved. Not later. Now are we the sons of God. And yet, or And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he, Jesus, is pure. Echanos, that one, Jesus, is pure. So, uh, what do we do? We advance. We grow. We desire to know more and more. That's the attitude, the biblical presentation of saving faith. If we have this attitude, then it makes us mercenaries. Tell me how much I need to know, Pastor, in order to be saved. It makes us mercenaries. We seek not God Himself but his salvation. Whereas the apostle will tell us that I may know him, not his salvation, but him. When God would advertise the greatest blessing that could be advertised to Abraham, what does he advertise? Abraham, I am thy shining shield. I am thy exceeding great reward. Not my salvation. 
And so when we say, what's the necessary knowledge of God that I have to have in order to cross that line to be saved? What have we done? We've taken God as our goal and swept him off the center stage and we put his salvation instead. And that is simply a mercenary attitude that the Lord will disabuse over and over again in scripture by putting himself as our exceeding great reward and shining shield. As some of the older divines have said, I think especially of of Samuel Rutherford where he says, heaven would not be heaven if my Jesus is not there. And I think maybe this is a little over the top. Some Some of them also spoke in this way. If Jesus were in hell, I would rather be there. I think that's over the top. But it expresses a sentiment, doesn't it? That is not over the top at all. No matter where Christ is to be found. That's where I want to be. Because it is him that I desire and not any of his gifts. I want the giver, not the gift. And in order then to the giver, I want to know more and more. The third point with regard to knowledge and faith then, and we can, um, we can dispatch with this pretty quickly, is that it has to do with the eternal disposition of those mired in sub-Christian cults and the general ignorance of God and his son, Jesus Christ. As Dr. Walter Martin used to say, and I think this is good divinity, he used to say, you know, beloved, the, the cults and the existence of the cults in many ways are the unpaid bills of the church. And what he meant by that is because we have ceased teaching doctrine because we have ceased teaching who God is to be believed in, embraced, rested on in saving faith, then we've made people easy pickings for substandard views of God and the compassion that they bring with them. And so people end up believing in a Jesus that was created, which is not the Jesus of Scripture. Right? The Apostle Paul will say in Galatians chapter 1, if any man comes to you and preaches a different gospel, including me, if I come back later and teach a different gospel, let me and let anyone else be anathema, whether it's an angel of heaven, another teacher, or myself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul will talk about false Christ, another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. Another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. Notice all these three things are related. To err in one is to err in all three. And that is what the cults are peddling. Another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. And how do we inoculate ourselves against the disease of believing falsehood about Christ, the gospel, and the spirit? It is not by examining the counterfeit, but by teaching and embracing the truth. Again, another thing that was taught by Dr. Martin, and I believe rightly so. So, beloved, we must then have this proper teaching in the church. We must have saving faith and nothing short of it. And in order to have saving faith, then we will, number one, deny implicit faith. 
Number two, we will deny that there's, a, that there's an end to our learning about God and that some knowledge is too much. And then number three, we will indeed distinguish Christ in all of his fullness so that we are inoculated against the errors of the cults and not drawn into sub-Christian damnable heresy, Arianism, Jehovah's Witnessism, Mormonism, Christian science, and other such things as that. No, beloved, rather, let us have saving faith. Um, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the apostle will speak at length on this topic. Some had come teaching a particular brand of eschatology that had disturbed the Thessalonian church. Oh, you mean it wasn't saving truth? It was eschatology? Oh, now you, are, now you get it, right? It's eschatology that is, that is uh, drawing the people of God off to sub-Christian sects here in 2 Thessalonians. And how is it that they could believe such drivel as that the resurrection had passed already. And that there was no bodily resurrection. That it was a spiritual resurrection only. How could they believe such drivel? Notice what it says. Verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Because they received not the love of the, what? Truth that they may be saved. You see how saving faith is characterized there, beloved? It is characterized as a love for the truth. So then, let us not put any stop signs on knowledge. Let us not say this much. Let us not say what God said to the seas. Hitherto shalt thou go, and no further, and hither shall thy proud waves be stayed. Let us not say that about knowledge. Let us wring out of the scriptures and any other means we have every particular thing that we might have to know him who is our exceeding great reward and shining shield. That we may know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. We are commanded then, aren't we? And the apostle Paul prayed over and again for the increase of knowledge. He prayed for that for the Ephesians in 117, for the Colossians in 110. Peter prays for it for us in 2 Peter 2, uh, 1, 2 through 5, and 318. And John, and let's go ahead and close with this. 1 John chapter 5, note the end of that book. Verse 18, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in 
wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come. Notice we know or we believe that. There are certain things that are to be believed here. That the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And how does he end? With all of that knowledge then, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the clarity of Thy Word, not only in revealing Thyself to us, but also in our attitude toward Thy self-revelation. And we thank Thee, Father, for the example of Moses and Paul and others. We thank Thee, Lord, for those who had an insatiable desire to know Thee, to draw near unto Thee, to hear what Thou hast proclaimed of Thyself, to be inoculated from error, to keep themselves from idols. O dear Heavenly Father, we pray, Increase our knowledge. Confirm us in that which we know that is true. And sweep with the besom of destruction out of our minds those errors that have obtained in our thoughts. Deliver us, we pray, from, as we say in our larger catechism, unworthy and wicked thoughts of thee. Deliver us also from ignorance and forgetfulness of what we have learned and do know. And grant to us that our faith may be true saving faith, that it would be founded upon knowledge and understanding. And so, Lord, we pray, as we have not the capacity to know these things naturally, but are prone instead uh, to receive thy truth in unrighteousness. Lord, we pray, illumine our minds by thy word and spirit through an ordinary use of means that we love and enjoy and make frequent use of that we might know thee truly and that we might have that unique place in our thoughts in our faith, in our understanding, in our knowledge, and especially in our affections that belongs to thee and thee alone. Keep us from idols, Lord, as we ourselves endeavor to keep ourselves from idols. And we pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.